Good morning. This morning we conclude our uh, February series. We've been uh, looking at uh, questions, does the Bible really say? Looking at phrases that we have come to accept as, as gospel truth and finding out whether they truly are gospel truth or not. And this morning we're going to take a little more of a doctrinal turn and look at the question, does the Bible really say that we should baptize babies? You know, later on the service, we're going we're gonna to celebrate baptism with, with the two Heisinger boys. A wonderful experience of the sacrament that God gives us, a gift of grace in our lives. But sadly, you know, God gives us these two sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, as his means of grace, of freely giving us his grace. And we have been graceless with each other throughout the years as we argue and fight about how these sacraments actually work, right? And so you take, you take the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of communion. Over the last centuries, we have fought about how often to celebrate it and how to celebrate it. We've, we've in, developed, you know, these 50-cent words like consubstantiation and transubstantiation and pneumatic presence, and we argue and we fight about grace. And we do the same thing with baptism far too often, Right? In baptism, we, we wrestle with each other about, about how we are to baptize. Does immersion matter or does sprinkling count too? And we argue and we, we arm wrestle about who to baptize, children or adults. It's been an area of theological wrestling for some of you here. I know because I've talked with you about it. Those of you who have not been raised in the Reformed Presbyterian branch uh, really wrestle with this infant and children being baptized, right? If we have any theological debates nowadays in our culture, and it's not really that, that prevalent to debate and argue theology, but if we have any left, it's probably around baptism. If you've ever argued that question with a friend, you're in good company. Okay? Let me give you a quick church, church history story, okay? Before the Reformation in the 16th century, the Catholic Church was the only Christian church. And all they did was infant baptism, pretty much. Right? And, then, and then along came the Reformation, right? And with the Reformation came the rise of what's called the Anabaptist tradition, which is now the modern-day Mennonite church, Okay? And, and the Anabaptists back in the 16th century came to the conclusion that infant baptism doesn't work. That that's inappropriate. They were the first to subscribe to believers' baptism. So way back in the 16th century, they were the first ones to say that baptism you had back in the Catholic Church was no good. So come and be rebaptized again. So anybody who wanted to be a part of that Anabaptist tradition was rebaptized for the second time. Now, back in the 16th century, theological debates were a big deal. And so this rebaptism thing was a big deal. And not only did the remaining Catholic Church say, no, you can't do it, you can't rebaptize, but most of the other reformers said the same thing. And they took it so seriously that they prescribed the death penalty. Seriously, the death penalty for anybody who was rebaptized who believed in believer baptism. And that wasn't just a law in the books. They followed through. So they went and found the Anabaptist leader by the name of Belteshara Hubmeyer, and they burned him at the stake. And three days later, they grabbed his wife, and they tied a millstone around her neck, 
and they threw her in the Danube River. Thousands of people were persecuted and killed over baptism. And they called what they did to his wife and to many others, they called it a third baptism. Kind of a clever and cruel thing, right? You want to be baptized twice? We'll baptize you a third time. We'll throw you in the river and drown you. Sad. Those were our, our spiritual ancestors doing that to each other. It's a sad moment in our history. And so I want us to know right off the bat this morning as we talk about this topic that we are talking about differences among brothers and sisters in Christ, in the family of God. This is far from a salvation issue worth killing or dying over, right? So every month... I'll do it this Wednesday. I've told you before, I get together for lunch with pastors from all over Granville, and I'll be sitting around the table for encouragement and prayer with, with pastors and church leaders who probably look at me a little, little sideways because they believe in be- believer's baptism instead of infant baptism. Is that going to stop me from doing ministry together with them? Absolutely not. But I know that some of you, like some of those pastors I sit with, wonder, does the Bible really say that we're supposed to baptize children? So we're going to look this morning at our scriptural understanding of baptism from the Reformed tradition that lays the foundation of our understanding. And we need to start all the way back in Genesis 17. Take out your Bibles, if you would. Turn to Genesis 17, page 12 in the Bibles you have in front of you. It's a key chapter, not only for understanding the sacrament of baptism. But it's a key chapter for understanding all of God's actions throughout this whole book, throughout the scriptures. You see, this book is a story about our God doing everything he possibly can to be in a loving relationship with the people that he loves, you and I, who have an awfully hard time loving him back. It's what this whole book is about. It's about God making his way into a relationship with you and with me. And in order to understand how he does that, before we read this chapter, Genesis 17, we need to understand how he did it in the Old Testament culture within this, was, with this book was written. And and there's a word we need to maybe be reminded of or maybe understand for the very first time. I hope it's not a brand new word for you, but we need to, first of all, ground ourselves in the word covenant, okay? It's a key word, a covenant. If you look it up in the dictionary, it's defined as this. It's an agreement, usually formal, between two or more persons to do something specified, okay? it's It's an official agreement, A covenant is an agreement that defines a relationship. Understand that it defines a relationship. It makes clear expectations between two people. We make covenants all the time. We don't call them covenants, usually. When you get married, your marriage license is a covenant. It it defines a new relationship together, an understanding of how you're going to relate together. If you ever adopted a child, those adoption papers you sign are a covenant. You are going to relate in a certain way with this person, in a new way with this person. Even when you go to work, when you are hired, you sign a contract, and there's a covenant. 
you're going to provide a certain amount of work. They're going to provide a certain amount of pay. And you got this in agreement to be in a relationship together. And if you read the scripture, if you know the story, at the very beginning of Genesis, there's no need for a covenant. There's no need for this formal agreement because everything is perfect. Everything is right. And Genesis 3 tells us that Adam and Eve walked and talked with God in the cool of the garden. The relationship was exactly what it was supposed to be. Everybody understood how it's supposed to work. And then comes the serpent. And then comes sin. Then comes this relationship gulf between a perfect God and now sinful people. And if you think about it, it's an amazing testimony to the grace of God that there is anything in this book past Genesis chapter 3 where this fall happens. Because at that very moment when Adam and Eve chose to break God's heart, to, to, to pull this perfect relationship apart, the easiest thing God could have done is just to be done with us, to be done with Adam and Eve, to destroy all that he created, to, to be done with this pain. But he didn't do that. Instead, God immediately set into motion a plan to restore this relationship again to bring us back to him. And so if you've read the end of the book, you know at the end of time, that relationship is perfectly restored. You and I will be in that whole and perfect relationship with God again. So the story begins with a perfect relationship. The story ends with a perfect relationship. In the middle, you and I need to figure out how to be in relationship with a perfect God. And that's where we need to understand the word covenant. Because God makes covenant agreements, relationship agreements with you and with me, with his people throughout history. So again, before we read Genesis chapter 17, let me give you just a little history lesson of how covenants worked back in the Old Testament. Because in the Middle East culture 4,000 years ago was very different from our West Michigan culture here today. See, you need to understand that back in, in the Middle Eastern culture, yes, there were great nations that we read about like Egypt and Babylon, world powers that, that ruled over, over vast areas of land. But more often, there were little individual city-states. So each city had its wall and its territory around the city, maybe a mile or two, and each city had a king. And maybe every few miles you had this individual city-state with its own king and they were close enough and they kept on bumping into each other and you needed to find some way to figure out how to get along so you weren't always fighting against each other and so they pulled out covenants they made covenants together to relate I'll do this for you you do this for me I won't attack you you don't attack me there are covenants all over the place within these, these cultures here. And, and it happened, too, between these great kingdoms and the smaller ones. See, there's three kinds of covenants. I'm just going to talk about one of them. It has a funny name because that's the one we're going to look at here. It's called a suzerain-vassal covenant. Makes no sense to you, I would guess. A suzerain was the great king. Uh, a king over many of these cities. 
Vassals were those individual smaller kings. So you have somebody with all the power, somebody who doesn't have the power. And that's what chapter 17 we're about to read. The Abrahamic covenant is a suzerain vassal covenant. So this great king would come to this individual city king and say, I could destroy you, but I don't want to. Let's go into a covenant together. How about if we make promises to each other? I promise not to destroy you. In fact, I promise to protect you and I'll let you live as an individual city. You promise maybe to give me some money, maybe to pay some taxes to me. Maybe if I need an army, if I get attacked, you're going to come and protect me too. And they sign on together. A covenant, an if-then agreement with blessings if you, if you hold to your end of the bargain, curses if you don't. Okay, so understand that. Big king, little king, coming into agreement together. Now, here's God. Our God, the big king, so desperately wants to be in relationship with you and with me, with all the people that he loves, that he submits himself to two of these covenant agreements. And one of them is here in Genesis chapter 17. And this is a profound, pivotal moment in history where God pledges himself to his people. And his people pledge themselves to him. Listen to this covenant-making chapter. Start at verse 1. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. And then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Okay, there's the heart of the covenant right there. You be my God. Let, make me your God and you will be my people. And now, remember there's, there's agreements on both sides. Now comes God's side of the covenant. Here's what he's going to do. So Abram fell fat, face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Okay, stop there for just a moment. That's a profound list of blessings that God promises to Abraham. It's a whole new life. A whole new life that's symbolized by changing his name. You'll no longer be Abram. Now you'll be Abraham. A whole new person through this covenant. Through this relationship, Abraham will become the father of many nations. He'll become very fruitful. His offspring will become kings, God says. The whole land of Canaan will be yours for generations to come. And for a nomadic wanderer like Abram, who never had a place to call home, this is a huge and glorious, profound promise of a blessing of a place to call home. 
That's what God promises to bring to the relationship. Profound blessing. To sum it up, God makes his promise. He says, if you enter this relationship with me, I will be your good God. I will be your good God. Now here's what you need to do, Abraham. Here's Abraham's side. Start, keep reading at verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you for the generations to come. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or brought, bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now here's what Abraham needs to bring. As for you, and doesn't that sound strange? The answer is circumcision. What a strange requirement. It, it doesn't, doesn't make sense to us until we understand it in the context of covenant, right? What the suzerain king demands is back in verse 1 and 2. Demands complete loyalty, right? It's this, this vassal king, this smaller king, giving complete loyalty and service. Verse 1, walk before me and be blameless. It's obedience. Circumcision is simply and profoundly the sign of the covenant. It is Abraham's signature on the deal. It's his proclamation that, yes, God, you are my king, and I submit myself in obedience to you. You see, there were often in Old Testament, when, when, when covenants were made, there were ways, profound ways, ceremonies to, to sign the deal. They didn't have paper and pen so much, and so you signed it in a different way. You read back in the Old Testament another instance when there's a covenant made, and Again, it's with Abraham. And remember what he does? He takes a goat and a sheep and another animal and he cuts them, in, a cow, and he cuts them in half and he puts the halves on either side and he walks between the two halves. Sounds kind of, kind of gross, doesn't it? But what he's saying as he walks between them is he says, if I break my end of this covenant, do to me what we've just done to these animals. Cut me in half. It's his signature on the deal. Well, circumcision, God says, is your signature on this deal, Abraham, for you and all of your ancestors. It's your way of saying, if I'm not obedient to this covenant agreement, if I'm not obedient to God, let me and my offspring be cut off and thrown away, just like this foreskin. Cut me off. It's a bold and a permanent declaration that God is their God. And Abraham signs on, right? Pick up this, this, uh, this chapter back at verse 23, down towards the bottom. 
It says, on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Abraham signed on to the covenant with his blood. He enters into this relationship with God that has been offered to him by grace. And notice, he brings his whole family in with him into the covenant. It says his son Ishmael is circumcised along with every male in his household. And later when his son Isaac, this promised child from God, is born, he's circumcised when he's eight days old. And that becomes the pattern, the tradition following the command of God. Eight days. When you're eight days old, you're circumcised. Remember Jesus being brought to the temple when he's eight days old. Circumcision confirmed and defined the relationship with God. And that relationship was a gracious gift from God given to the whole family, even to children. Now, they would still need to choose if they would live out their side of the covenant bargain when they grew up. But for that moment, God's grace reached down to them and began his loving covenant relationship with them. It's a declaration of God's love saying, I am your God. And before you even know it, not dependent on you, you are my children. You are my people. And I love you. So what? So what about all this history? Well, bring it, bring it to the New Testament time. Because now comes Jesus, right? For all this Old Testament history, the people of God are signified. They're, they're identified by circumcision. They sign into the covenant relationship with blood. And then comes Jesus, the fulfillment of God's promise of the new covenant that's being born in him. Remember Jeremiah? The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, he looks at this old covenant and he says something new is coming. There's a new covenant on the way. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. He's pointing back to Genesis chapter 17. Right, when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband with them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. He says there's a new covenant relationship coming. And it has now come in Jesus Christ. It's been granted through his blood shed on the cross, through his resurrection power we are now brought into a full relationship with God. And Jesus' perfect sacrifice fulfilled all of the blood requirements of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament. It fulfilled all the requirements of the sacrificial system, and it fulfilled all the bloody requirements of circumcision. Blood is no longer required in the New Covenant. 
Paul tells that to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, remember that formerly you who were the Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised, right, out of that old covenant, called the uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by the hands, by human hands. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, right, excluded from citizenship in Israel, from that old covenant, as foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in this world. But now, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We, you and I, are now brought into a relationship with God through the blood of Jesus. We don't sign that covenant with our blood anymore. Jesus signed it with his blood on our behalf once and for all. Now, we sign with water. With the water of baptism. And it's through this water that God invites us to enter into this covenant relationship of love where he promises to be our faithful saving father. And we promise to be his faithful, obedient people. And we get to see this lived out in the New Testament. We see New Testament believers living out the very same pattern that the Old Testament people of Israel did. So remember we just read, Abraham included his whole family in the covenant through circumcision. Adults, children, they all belonged to the covenant. They all entered into this relationship with God. And if you look at Acts chapter 16... We see believers include their whole families now through the covenant of baptism. So when Paul, in Acts chapter 16, Paul is in the city of Philippi, and, and it says that God's spirit works in the heart of a woman named Lydia. And she believes, and verse 15 tells us that she and the members of her household were baptized. And it goes on, the very next story in Acts chapter 16 is the story of Paul and Silas who are chained in prison in Philippi. And that night, the earthquake comes and it shakes the, the prison doors open and the chains fall off of them and they're free. But, but they and the prisoners do not leave. They stay in the prison. And the jailer who's about to kill himself because punishment for letting the prisoner free for a prisoner escaping is that the jailer must kill himself. And Paul says, stop, no, we're all here. And that jailer listens to the story of Jesus. He accepts it for himself. And, and the story says in verse 33 that immediately he and his, all his family were baptized. Again, we hear echoes of Genesis 17, don't we? When Abraham and all of his household were circumcised. Now, are we absolutely certain that there were children in the jailer's family or in Lydia's family. No, it doesn't say so. Are chances pretty good that they had kids? That there were children? Yeah, chances are pretty good. But beyond those facts, even though the answer to the question, does the Bible really say we should baptize babies? There is no direct command. There's no direct statement. But if you look at the overarching patterns if you look at the overarching covenant promises together, 
They invite us to enter into this new covenant relationship with God through baptism. Just as God's people of Israel entered into a loving covenant relationship with him through circumcision. Both as individuals and as whole families. Baptism is simply and profoundly the sign of the covenant that God begins by his grace not by our worthiness, not by our choice. And so baptism becomes our covenant response to God's covenant commitment. I will be your God. Will you be my people? Will you be in a relationship with me? And that's where our discussions and our debate should lie. It might... My guess is we're going to continue to argue and debate about baptism. I don't expect that, that these few moments together are going to totally change the debate out there in the world. But the greater question that you and I and all of us need to wrestle with is how are we living out that covenant commitment? How are you living out that covenant commitment? How am I? See, in just a few moments, we're going to baptize two young boys. But this grace-receiving, covenant-signing ceremony isn't just for them. And it's not just for for this one family. It's a covenant-making moment for all of us here as the family of God. Every single one of us. Right? For those of us who have maybe already been invited as children into this covenant relationship through the water of baptism. We've been baptized before. We now need to ask ourselves, will we fully commit to the covenant? Will I own that covenant relationship, this, my side of this covenant relationship for myself? Will we be God's people fully submitting to him in obedience? And so this coming April, We're looking forward to celebrating with eight young people who will be making their profession of faith right here. Accepting that invitation. Affirming that covenant commitment that God has already started with them. It's a covenant celebrating moment that I pray will come for these two boys being baptized and for all of you who have been baptized before and are still waiting to say, yes, I agree. But for all of us, for those of us who have already owned our side of the covenant, every baptism celebration is a moment for us to ask ourselves if we truly are committing ourselves fully to the covenant. Am I? God has promised to be our saving God. He signed that covenant promise with the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. And he's upholding his end of the deal. He is our good God. Are we being his faithful people? Are we holding our end of this relationship? Promise. Baptism asks each one of us again. Will we recommit ourselves to this covenant? To this relationship that God has so graciously given us? Let's pray together that we would this morning. God, By your grace, and it is only by your grace, 
you have come to us and welcomed us into a relationship with you. You so easily could have, and you probably should have, just given up on us way back in Genesis chapter 3, been done with us. You would have avoided so much pain, so much heartache, so much disappointment that not only the human race in general has caused you, but each one of us here this morning has caused you. And yet in grace, you refuse to give up and you refuse to give in. And you made a way through your son for us to be in a loving relationship with you. And so, Father, thank you, first of all, for your amazing grace that reaches down to us. Thank you for your promise that you will be our good God. Now help us to respond well, Father. Help us to accept this gracious invitation to be in a loving relationship with you. And help us to learn how to be your faithful, obedient people. Give us hands to receive this gift of love that you have given us. And give us hearts that are committed to you. And we thank you that in your grace you include all of us, young and old, before we can say a word, before we understand it one bit, you welcome us into a covenant relationship with you. Thank you. May our hearts and our lives respond in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in this sacrament of baptism,